Welcome to the Iron Butterfly Podcast, sponsored by the National Security Institute and the Amazing Women of the IC, better known as AWIC. My name is Megan Jaffer. And I'm Katie Hopkins, and we will be your hosts. 80 years ago, Eloise Page joined the Office of Strategic Services, or the OSS, a predecessor for what we recognize today as the United States Intelligence Community. Page started as a secretary, but worked her way to becoming a case officer, and later she became the first female chief of station at CIA. Along the way, she earned the nickname Iron Butterfly, known for being a fierce fighter with a core of steel. The Iron Butterfly podcast aims to continue her legacy, inviting the U.S. intelligence community's unsung heroines to share their stories with aspiring IC leaders. On this episode, we are joined by Teresa Shea. Teresa is a recognized leader with more than 35 years of public and private experience in intelligence and defense. She served as Executive Vice President of Technology and Director of Cyber Reboot at Incutel. She joined Incutel after a distinguished 32-year career with the National Security Agency, NSA, where she held several key leadership assignments during her career, culminating as the Director of Signals Intelligence. Teresa is currently the President of OpalNet LLC. She serves on numerous boards and is an advisor with a passion for a safer and more secure nation. Teresa, welcome to Iron Butterfly. We are so excited to have you on with us. As you probably know, we start each of our podcast episodes the same way. So I'm really curious how you found yourself in the intelligence community. Oh, you guys, Katie, Megan, thank you so very much for having me. I am absolutely love what you guys are doing with your promotion of women in both intelligence and security. It is so greatly appreciated by so many. So I'm super, super excited to be here. Last week, I was at the beach on vacation. So I'm coming fresh off the Barbie movie. And I wanted to say that finding NSA, this is going to sound really strange, was like finding Barbie land for me. I was a student at Georgia Tech in electrical engineering, and my boyfriend, who's now my husband for 41 plus years, was a co-op for the Central Intelligence Agency. And so I was looking for summer work close to CIA headquarters, and NSA was recruiting on our campus. So I went there to work between my junior and senior year and really got hooked on the mission. You probably hear that a lot, but the work was super cool and the people were just genuinely passionate about what they did. It was a very close community. We did a lot of social stuff together. So after I graduated, got married, had my first child, (laughs) I ended up going back to NSA. I ended up staying there 34 years. You know, what's so interesting about NSA is that not very many people know about what NSA is or what it does, or that they think they know what it is and what it does. So I was wondering if you could compare NSA to other intelligence agencies and what assumptions or misconceptions do people have about NSA? A lot. (laughs) (laughs) Just start by saying, I think today there are 18 different organizations that make up the intelligence community. So I'm not going to compare to all 18 of those. I'll leave that to your other podcast guests as you have the opportunity to cover all the intelligence organizations. Let me just focus fundamentally on NSA. 
it is the cryptologic heart and soul of the nation. It's always from the beginning been the mission for NSA to serve the nation. And there's really two parts of that. The first is the making of codes, which is the information assurance now called cybersecurity directorate and the breaking of codes called signals intelligence, which is addressed in the operations directorate. And signals intelligence is really derived from foreign adversaries in response to the requirements from policymakers and military decision makers. There's a couple of misconceptions I'll highlight, I think, because I hear these a lot. The first is that NSA is strictly a technical producer of capabilities. And it's accurate that SIGIN system is capability based, but the job is really to produce actionable and timely intelligence. And to produce that intelligence, you need a multi-talented team that includes the language professionals, mathematicians, analysts, computer scientists, and engineers. <laughs> and I, so I, I think a lot of times there's an underestimation of thinking, I can't work at NSA because I'm not an engineer. Or I'm not super technical. No, actually, we need a lot of different talent. So that's one. The other one I would mention is this misconception that NSA is spying on Americans. The truth is that NSA has always held privacy and civil liberties as an imperative. But you may recall, maybe not, but back in 2013, there was a huge classified data leak by Edward Snowden. And President Obama, after that, formed a very distinguished, I think, investigative committee to dive deep into NSA operations. And one of those members was Dr. Jeffrey Stone, who's a law professor at the University of Chicago and also very much a First Amendment scholar. And after a very detailed review of the NSA activities, he made this statement that not only did I find that NSA had helped to thwart numerous terrorist plots against the U.S. and its allies in the years since 9-11. But I also found that it's an organization that operates with a high degree of integrity and a deep commitment to the rule of law. You didn't hear much about those comments in the press <laughs> among no. all the <laughs> negative uh, uh, press that was going on. But that external review group's report found no evidence that NSA had knowingly or intentionally engaged in any unlawful or unauthorized activity. And to the contrary, quite frankly, had very carefully crafted internal procedures to ensure that it operated within the bounds of the lawful authority. And today, and, and this was a very good outcome of all of that, was the formation of the Privacy and Civil Liberties Office which issues public reports on the operations of NSA for that real important purpose of increased transparency. That is such a cool answer. I didn't know any of that. And I also think even what you said at the beginning about just what NSA does and the types of people and capabilities, like I feel like liberal arts listeners everywhere just side a sigh of relief because there might be a place for them. Absolutely, there's a place for them there because you do need, I just, a lot of times consistently the 
liberal arts talent is underestimated, but I am here to tell you it is vital to the ability to produce intelligence. And um, it's an end-to-end process. And those analysts are on the pointy end of the sphere, (laughs) you know, serving the customer, answering the questions, figuring out from the data what the intelligence really is. That's so cool. So Tracy, you mentioned that you had just a really long career at NSA. I think you said 34 years, which is really amazing. What kept you there for so long? Yeah, that's simple. There, it was the mission and the people. Um, you know, as we talked about, NSA is part of the intelligence community, but it's also part of the Department of Defense. It's a combat support agency, like others, that you know provide real time support to our troops around the world. People at NSA shared a real strong passion for the mission because you're not going to get rich working at NSA. In case anybody anybody has that misconception, let me just straighten that out for you right here. But they do make a difference for the country and consequently share a bond that I think is unique and special, that greater good. And the one other thing I'll share with you is when you retire from a long career in the DOD or the IC, you get a lot of mementos and awards. I mean, like I'm talking boxes. And there's only one that I really keep out today. And it's a letter that actually came from a military officer in the field who wrote to me when I was a sitting director, thanking us for saving the lives of his platoon because we warned them of an attack and it actually, you know, made the difference life and death for his entire platoon. So, you know, it's things like that that really kept me there. Wow. That's pretty powerful. Yeah. You know, over the course of your long career, um, you found yourself in positions leading others, sometimes thousands of others, uh, who look to you for vision, strategy, execution, results, and most importantly, their value proposition. So could you tell us and tell our listeners what positions you held and what lessons you learned? Megan, you're making me sound really impressive. <laughs> you are. <laughs> Thank you for that. <laughs> um, so when we talk about maybe three what I would call game-changing positions for me and the lessons I learned in each of those. First uh, would be when I ran an office called Tailored Access Operations. And that was in the early days of computer network exploitation as a source of SIGINT from our foreign adversaries. It was, and still is, very technically sophisticated and fraught with policy and legal landmines. So I really learned early on to surround myself with people that were a lot smarter than I was. And not only that, but to listen intently to what they could teach me and what I could take away from them. Many folks today look back on those times and call it the golden age of SIGINT, but uh, I recall it being very hard work with very long days (laughs) every day by very smart people. And then I was honored to follow that position with a senior liaison officer position in London. So this was just a fabulous experience, being able to work out of the American embassy in London, downtown London, 
and learning so much from so many of the diplomats who spend their career mm-hmm. really working in foreign countries. Uh, the first lesson I learned, maybe the hard way, <laughs> was that um, as a liaison officer, networking and social engagements are essential. Mm-hmm. So they are the foundation of cultivating those relationships and the relationships that build trust, an essential part of a partnership, right? Mm-hmm. We can all agree with that. It matters where people sit at the dinner table and it matters what wine you serve because people aren't going to linger over bad wine. <laughs> <laughs> That's a good lesson. Yeah, Always serve good wine. People enjoy it more and they stay longer. And then when I came back, um, I was a signet director for four years running the worldwide operations here. And uh, you really learn quickly about stamina and perseverance um, are essential. You know, every day you got to be on your game because <laughs> there's a crisis somewhere in the world. Trust me. Right. So here's a, you know, a key lesson that I hope everybody already knows, and I'm just repeating, but you've got to take care of yourself to take care of others. And the second thing I would say is you need to trust your team and delegate not just tasks, but decisions and responsibilities. They may not do the things the way you would do them, execute them, but part of your responsibility as a leader is growing that next cadre of leadership. So you leave the organization in a better place than when you found it. I've heard a couple of people, actually another senior leader named Teresa, um, (laughs) that said the same thing, that it's important to take care of yourself um, before you take care of others. And I wonder, could you tell us one thing you do to take care of yourself? Oh, yeah. Yoga. Look, let me just tell you this quick story. And um, when I was the second director and we were working, like I said, a lot. Mm -hmm. And my team, my leadership team was working a lot. And I met with, uh, we had a health organization there at NSA and which is fabulous nurse who said, you really got, you guys really need to bring in an outsider and learn a little bit more about how to be healthy as you're leading this organization. Mm -hmm. Cause we need you. Yeah. It turned out that many of my, you know, a couple of my team leaders had serious health problems that they weren't aware of. And going through that process made us more aware. And the trainer, the one thing that he said that I'll never forget is he said, you all think you're very important. (laughs) And you are, but you think you can't be away from here. He said, give me 20 minutes a day. Do something for yourself 20 minutes a day. I don't care what it is, whether you're exercising, whether you're sitting in a bathtub drinking a glass of wine, but spend 20 minutes a day on yourself. And ever since then, I've really tried to practice that. You know, some days it's hard, but I find that I do get that rejuvenation if, you know, when with that little bit of time, it makes a difference. I love that. What do you do? What do you guys do? So... Katie's looking at me with her eyes wide open. So I love to be outside. I think being outside regenerates or, you know, I I get energy from that. So I have, I now have three dogs. I know, I know what, I know how that sounds, but, you know, taking them out for a walk really kind of just, I don't know if it's the air or it's looking at the trees or it's being with the dogs, but it gives me a reboot. 
What about you, Katie? You know, I think I actually, during COVID, started a sort of ritual. I love the mornings, partly because no one really bothers you in the morning. Like morning is sacred time. I used to, pre-COVID days, like roll out of bed and roll into the car and like roll to work. And it was like, I was always impressed how fast I could make it door to door. And then during COVID, we had to do some shift work. So I was up at very early hours of the morning. And I actually started, weirdly enough, making myself breakfast and like actually leaving time to drink my, like make a nice cup of coffee and drink my coffee. Weirdly enough at 3am is when I started this ritual, but that has actually lasted past, past COVID. Uh, It's my favorite thing to do. It's my favorite time of day. So Teresa, you kind of mentioned this earlier, but you had to lead your organization through a real crisis. And I'm wondering if you could tell us a little bit about that. Yeah. Well, um, I think the most difficult crisis I felt like I faced as a leader was the Snowden leaks of 2013. And there were numerous aspects of this particular crisis that compounded the difficulty. Um, But key to any ability to lead others is this foundation of trust. And certainly I think at that time we lost a lot of trust with the American people who were the people we serve, who are the reason we're there. Um, It was a classified leak, very political one, as you may recall. And we were really dependent on others for for our defense. And that's why transparency, especially with those that you lead and those that you serve is so, so important. And when you're in the crisis, you set the tone. Your your employees are looking at you. They're looking at you a lot anyway, but especially during a crisis. Mm-hmm. And so you, I always try, Katie, to smile a lot, which, <laughs> which was hard. And always, and I built this on the foundation that I already had, but you know, every act, despite how bad it might have gotten, had to be an act with character, integrity, and I think most importantly, competency and demonstrating that um, because your actions speak louder than your words. And I don't care if you're at the grocery store or at work, people know who you are and they're watching you. So the only other thing I think I would add to that is, you know, you got to, you can't panic in situations like that. So staying calm. And I had leadership above me who were phenomenal mm-hmm. and excellent examples. Uh, but s- certainly you're going to make mistakes, but not beating yourself up about those, making different choices the next day. That was one thing um, that as more information became available, we were able to do as a team. I'm a lifelong learner, a uh, student of leadership. And one of my favorite leaders is Winston Churchill, maybe from my time in London. I don't know. I really feel an affinity for him. The way he led during World War II, he never gave up. And consequently, I think we're in a better place today as a world. So I look to strong leaders as examples and strength um, during those times as well. I love that answer. I'm, I'm curious if you found it difficult when you were unable to talk about what was happening at work at, when you came home? Like, how did you, I mean, I feel like when I have a bad day, I go to my husband and I say, this happened and that happened and the other thing happened. Like, what do I do? How did you handle that? Yeah, it, you know, it is, I was fortunate and I mentioned earlier that my husband had worked at CIA. So he and NSA, 
he he understood that. That way we could just avoid talking about that. And and we had our first child 11 months after we got married. So we had plenty of other things <laughs> we could be talking about, right? And that, that wasn't a problem. As my children got older, um, I, I tried to create this persona of super cool mom. <laughs> You know, being a being a spy, I still do that today with my grandchildren. You know, being, being a, a spy, which you can do a lot with today. So for me, maybe that was a little bit unique or different than than others. But it can be, it certainly can be hard, especially when there's news articles and press articles, etc. Maybe talking about your organization, and you can't really comment on that. Yeah, that sounds really, really hard. And I know you mentioned a couple of things, but you know, if we have any listeners who find themselves right now leading through periods of what feels like a crisis, what would you, what advice would you give them? Yeah, I think, you know, a couple of things that, that I mentioned, don't panic and be present and smile a lot, <laughs> even though it's because others are looking to you to make decisions and move forward. And that is a burden, but it can be shared with your team, your part, you know, your partners there at work that lead with you. I mean, those are a couple of things that really worked well for me in my situation, given that we were in a very classified environment and we all had taken everybody that's um, got a security clearance, takes an oath of office to protect classified information, regardless of whether we may think it gets published or not. That's not our decision. You know, it's fundamentally relying on the basis that you've already built with your, like I was talking about, with your character, your integrity. And that's so important. It's going to come into play and, and really get you through those times. You know, you've often said that trust is fundamental to a successful person, mission and business. And I was wondering if you could share some examples with us of why you think that. I definitely think that your ability to lead people, that we're talking about people here at the end of the day, right, mm -hmm. is directly proportional to their trust in you. They're going to follow you if they trust you and believe yeah. you, right? And that trust is not not given freely. You got to earn it, right? yeah. and you can't take it for granted. Um, there's a great quote. So Harry Weatherby is a national asset. <laughs> <laughs> and um, he wrote a book under a pen name called The Character of a Leader. And there's a great quote in there. And it's, a king does not require service from those he leads, but provides it to them. If you've established that trust as a basis for the, with the folks that work for you and, and know you, and you ask them, you call them up and ask them to do something really hard, mm -hmm. like something they don't want to do. Like, come over here and be my chief of staff in this <laughs> worldwide organization and work around the clock and, you know, solve these hard problems. They will say yes, because they know you and they trust you. And that matters. Right? That matters. Um, the In business, it's the same. It's the same philosophy. It's required from both sides. It's a business trust relationship versus anything, you know, personal or employee boss relationship, but having that trust between and amongst, even if they're your competitors, mm -hmm. building those relationships and those trusts raises all boats. <laughs> 
at the end of the day, we're all in this for the mission and for our nation. And it's worth the time and effort. I can't tell you how many times I really had an advantage of being able to call people I knew and they knew me and they would take my call. So it's worth building the trust and keeping it (laughs) because you do have to earn it. I I almost feel silly of not thinking about it that way, but it's because it's such a simple thing, right? A simple concept. You should have trust. You, You should be trusted. But I think about all of the amazing leaders I've worked for and at the core of it, it's because I trusted them. It's kind of like a tidal wave right now hitting me like that's, that's at the core of it. So thank you for that. Yeah. So Teresa, you also following your time at NSA, you have spent time a variety of other places. So you were at InQtel, which is a nonprofit venture company, uh, Raytheon, which is a profit and loss business. And now you sit on boards and you consult and you mentor and many other types of businesses and organizations across the community. What would you say you've learned from just these different lenses and experiences across industry, government, uh, nonprofit, across the community? Yeah. Wow. Um, I would say I've learned a lot and I'm still (laughs) learning (laughs) because there's a lot to learn out there. Um, you know, let's start with who you work for really matters. I think you guys all know, you know that. And I always wanted to work for individuals that I had the great respect for and could learn from. And I, when I got out um, and decided to go to InQtel, which is a strategic investment firm for the national security space, it was the first time I really got exposed to nation startup community and the venture capital community. <laughs> <laughs> Um, I believe that that community is a national asset Mm -hmm. and, you know, it it shouldn't be underestimated or undervalued because they, they really, it's really the talent and the money. Let's not underestimate the money that the venture capital world pours into our innovation. I mean, they make a lot of money too, (laughs) but they do pour a lot of money into (laughs) fueling our country's commercial innovation, innovation, as well as for the government. So I'll just say, you know, that experience was phenomenal. And I just give lots of kudos to those passionate entrepreneurs. We need more raise your children to be passionate entrepreneurs who are building a better future for us and the investors that support them. Switching then, I decided from InQtel, I really wanted to go to work for Raytheon. I had been on their advisory board and I wanted to learn how to run a profit and loss business. And up my alley is cyber. And so um, I did take a position with Raytheon running a business called Codex Cyber Offense Defense Experts. Learning the contractor side of government business was both surprising and I'd say alarming. Oh, wow. <laughs> That's not what uh, I don't think there's many government employees that really appreciate what happens on the other side. Mm-hmm. Uh, alarming because there's a lot of government impedance for good reasons, policies, laws, et cetera, to delivering outcome by the contractor. It was greater than I had anticipated. 
And so we aren't going to go down that pathway about talking about the acquisition regime, but suffice it to say, yes, let's affirm it needs to change. And surprising, I think, because you, you know, as I said, when you're in the government, you really have no idea what it takes to win work with the government. And most notably, the cost of, you know, the amount of money that goes into winning work, I think is just an, an unknown. It would be good if we could get some more transparency <laughs> between the government and the, and the private sector on that. One of the things that was, you know, key to, I think, uh, my success there running the PL was having a phenomenal finance partner, mm -hmm. as well as a business development partner, which I didn't really know very much about um, until I started running this business. And I had both. So that made it, that made my life much, much better. And the last thing I'd say about Raytheon when I was running the P&L was I always put the mission first. That's what's in my blood. Yeah. And you know what? If you deliver results that matter, your business will succeed. So that was sort of the bottom line. We had a lot of great talent. And then, uh, you know, now I'm reinventing myself. I, I feel like that. again, and having the best time, especially with my five grandchildren. Oh, wow. <laughs> um, I love the fact that I can control my schedule and decide, you know, what activities my time goes. My passion is in, you know, our national security space. And so it's always the focus of the work that I pursue. And being independent really requires you to rely on your networks. So build those networks along the way, because you're going to be surprised at how <laughs> frequent and often you use those networks long into your future. I think that's so awesome. And, you know, that's, that's how I know you is that you know, through networks. And I've always seen you at networking events and you, you always show up and it's, it, it's, it's awesome because not everyone does. And um, it, I, it is really important. I think that's how I've gotten through my career. I think that's how Katie's gotten through hers. Um, it's all about, you can't, you know, undervalue that. I think it's everything. Yeah. You know, it's hard as, I'm an introvert mm -hmm. and it's hard as an introvert to kind of make yourself go. Yeah. But every time, especially with like AWIC, which mm -hmm. I love, you know, every time I do go, I just, just so rejuvenating. You're talking about that earlier. Yeah. Um, it can just, I mean, because you've got this shared common value system and, you know, you want to help each other. And it's just, I just find it um, just awesome. Well, I would argue that, you know, that's when you should go. Because despite what I think a lot of people who know me think, I am an introvert too. <laughs> and I need, you know, I, I need my time alone to kind of recharge, right? And every single time I've ever gone to an AWIC event, um, I will tell myself, oh, I'm too tired this today or like I've had a bad day at work and I don't know if today's a good day for me to go. And those are the times you should go because to your point, every single time I've gone, I've always come out happier, recharged. And so I hear you on that one. Yeah. So 
We here at Iron Butterfly are big believers in the butterfly effect. The idea that small things uh, do matter and that individuals really can make a difference in a big world. And so how do you believe you made a difference as a single person in this massive community or uh, even on a global scale? So can I just say, I absolutely love the butterfly effect. Okay. <laughs> you can absolutely say that. Yes. <laughs> because, and I'm old, individuals do matter. They do make a difference. And there's this, it makes me think of this great poem that I love by Michael Joseph's son. And it's called, What Will Matter? And it is fundamentally about living a life of significance. Now, you know, the point in his poem is it's not about your success, but your significance to others. Mm -hmm. And you make a difference, Megan, as a single person with every act of integrity and compassion and courage or sacrifice that empowered or encouraged others. So one of the things I've always tried to do is strive every day to impact just one person, hopefully more, but just one, you know, so that, you know, when I go to bed at night, I can think about, you know, I, I believe that this one person will make a difference for someone else. Mm -hmm. And we build this ethos together that we want built and it grows. So it's about creating that culture culture so important and the environment, that safe environment that we desire. And I did that with every organization I worked in. It's a lot of hard work. It takes every, you know, you have to start at the bottom of the hill every day. But I think you guys have done that, exactly that with both AWIC and now with Iron Butterfly. So, you know, your impact and influence grow as you take on greater responsibilities and you have bigger and bigger um, things that you got to be responsible for and get done. But remembering that fundamental point that you have in your butterfly effect that individuals make the difference. Well, we're going to change this world. So Teresa, as you know, we are nearing the end and we end each of our podcast episodes with the same question which is in keeping with the name of this podcast, Iron Butterfly. If you had to give yourself a code name, what would it be and why? Oh, Katie, you are not going to be surprised. This was a super easy question for me. Oh, uh, nobody says that. No one has ever said that. Uh, Do you know who Jinx Johnson is? That's my code name. All right, so let me clue you in. Yeah. She was the character that Haley Berry played in the James Bond movie, Die Another Day. Do you remember that movie? Yes. Do you know, do you remember that she was an NSA officer <laughs> and she was the most coolest operator. She saves James Bond's life multiple times in this, in this movie. And it was just awesome, awesome fun. And uh, so, you know, as we were talking a little bit earlier, but since you spend your entire career not able to talk uh, with others about your family and friends about what you do, I'd always refer to Jinx. Hey, that's me. That cool looking Haley Berry in her bikini with her with her <laughs> knife strapped to her thigh. Where they'd be like, Oh right, Teresa. Right. Like <laughs> You are nowhere near that. That is your alter ego. That's like amazing. I love that. Fun, right? Yes. You gotta have fun in your life. So that would be that would be my 
codename, Jinx Johnson. Great answer. Great answer. Well, Teresa, uh, thank you very much for spending your time with us today here at Iron Butterfly, sharing your incredible stories and your life and your career in the IC. And I think we all, you know, on behalf of everyone, including the listeners, we thank you for your service. Thank you for your mentorship and thank you for always being there. Oh, absolutely, Megan. Thank you to you and Katie and the entire organization for having me. This was such an honor and so much fun. Oh, good. We like to hear that. We had fun too. (laughs) We did. We did have fun. This has been an episode of Iron Butterfly Podcast. We want to thank the National Security Institute at George Mason Scalia Law School for their technical sponsorship and Amazing Women of the IC for their promotion. To learn more about Iron Butterfly Media, visit our website at www.ironbutterflymedia.com. You can also learn more about NSI and upcoming events at nationalsecurity.gmu.edu. To find out more about AWIC, email amazingwomen.ic at gmail.com. And if you like the show, please be sure to rate, review, and subscribe. Lastly, we We want to thank Amanda Young for production assistance and Gracie Richberg for marketing assistance. Stay fierce and we'll talk next time.